Hey everyone, Pastor Matt here. You are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Canton. Our prayer is that the Word of God would both transform you and equip you to live a life unleashed for the glory of God. Our desire is that this content would not be a substitute for your regular gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, that it would be a supplemental boost to encourage you as you seek to follow Jesus. Thanks for listening. Now grab your Bible and let's jump into Scripture together. Take your Bibles and open up to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. Get your hands on a copy of God's Word, whether it's a print version or a digital version. We want to make sure that you've got uh, the text of Scripture in front of you. And we are beginning a new series today. Uh, I'm excited about this. I'm excited to be able to share uh, 1 Peter and walk through this with you all. And uh, my prayer is that this will be useful uh, in equipping us as a church to walk faithfully as God in Christ has called us to. And while you're turning to First Peter chapter 1, I want to highlight a couple of resources that I just want to encourage you to potentially utilize as we're going through this study. And uh, the first one is this little book. It's, uh, it's really thin. It's, there's not much to it. And this is an ESV scripture journal. Uh, and you open it up and it has the text on one side and a notebook page on the other. Uh, I use these in my sermon prep. It's a great way to just have the text with your notes side by side and, uh, a really simple resource, but a good way to keep it organized. Uh, some of you are not note takers. That's okay. Uh, this is not for you, but, uh, if you are, this is a phenomenal resource. Um, we've got a handful of these in the office available for five bucks each. So you can pick them up there or you can order them online yourself or you can let us know. And if we don't have more, we can order more. Just let us know with that one. Uh, the second resource uh, is called a reader's Bible. And the advantage of this is it has all of the biblical text without any of the numbers. So it takes out the chapters, it takes out the verses, it takes out uh, all of those breaks. And the reason this is valuable, this is a valuable resource, is because uh, when we read through Scripture, we are prone to have these physical barriers that stop us at the end of a verse or at the end of a chapter. And yet, First uh, Peter, like many other books in Scripture, is what? Well, it's a letter, and when we read a letter, uh, or if we were to write a letter, we don't naturally say, okay, here's the first part and the first section of the first part of this letter, so you could read that and then put it to the side. We would read the whole letter, and so a reader's Bible is a really neat way to help us to see the entirety of the context of that letter uh, without having those breaks where our mind may be prone to go, okay, that's enough, we can stop there without getting the full context. So neither of these are required. Uh, they are just resources that can help aid in your growth as you strive to follow after Jesus well. And that is my call as a pastor, as a shepherd to you, uh, according to Ephesians 4.12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so if there's uh, additional resources that you have questions about or you're wondering about, don't hesitate to reach out and let us know. We would love to be able to equip you better, especially as we seek to grow in Christ together. 
Now, as we uh, step into First Peter, what I want to do is I, I want to um, I want to pray, and then I want to read this section. We're just going to cover two verses today as we start into this series, and so I want to do that. Uh, but let's go to the Lord in prayer, commit this time to Him for His purposes that He would use it to grow us to build His church. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we know that you are sovereign, we know that you are faithful, we know that you are holy, that you are true, Lord, we know that your plans, your purposes prevail. And so as we, as we come to your word, Lord, I pray that you would use your spirit in a way that humbles us, in a way that helps us to see uh, who you would have us be as your people. Uh, it would help us to see how you would have us walk and live in a day-to-day world. Father, I pray that you would help us to see where our hope truly is and that which is eternal. Father, I pray that in the midst of hard seasons for many who are listening to this, you would bring a peace and a comfort and a confidence that's rooted in you. Lord, ultimately we trust you to take your word and to utilize it in our lives to penetrate to the depths of who we are and be transformed by it that you would be glorified. We commit this time to you in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I want you to finish this sentence. There is no place like home is the response. It's the answer. And home has a unique place in our lives and Uh, There's a feeling that we've experienced at some level or another. Uh, Honestly, it's a a feeling if you've ever if you've ever been on a long trip and uh, you're traveling, especially if you maybe you're traveling with young kids and you get to the last 10 to 15 minutes and you start to feel yourself just relax and breathe and you feel this weight leave you because you know I'm close to home. Now, there's a lot of differing perspectives about what home is. And depending on who you talk to, you might hear a different explanation of what home is. Some people uh, say home is a feeling. I, 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 home is a place when I feel at home. That's, that's home. Uh, many people would acknowledge that home is not a location or a building per se, but it has a lot to do with the people you're with and the feeling of a connectedness at I'm home when I'm with these people. And yet there's still other places where it, it is a location. Uh, one of my favorite places is, especially after a long trip or a long week, to come home and to sit down in my comfortable chair And to have my kids and my wife right there, and in that space, in that time, it just feels like home. And there's a peace and a joy and a contentment that comes when you're home. 
Now, increasingly, I hear from a lot of people uh, more and more who are disturbed by how quickly the world around does not feel like home. Uh, For our entire existence, we could even say that the most sought-after pursuit amongst people is to make our lives here comfortable or to make what we do here feel like home. Now, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. In the sense of desiring to formulate our lives in such a way uh, that we enjoy life and there's biblical merit to that. And yet, if we're not careful, we can easily become distracted by this in a way that we miss the focus that God in Christ has intended for us to have. And we're going to see Peter talk a lot about this in the chapters ahead, and we're going to talk about that some today. But before we step more fully into Peter's letter, I want us to actually read a passage from Philippians uh, that focuses in on this. And I'm, I'm going to have it put up on the screen, and I want you to read along as we read this text so that uh, you really seek to understand and ingrain it into uh who you are, and what is the Lord saying through the Apostle Paul here to the church at Philippi. And you're going to see how this pertains to our first introductory message in First Peter. And so here's what, here's what he writes. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears... Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body. To be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him. Even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, right in the middle of this text, what we see is uh, Paul emphasized something here in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who brings about transformation. And now in a place now where naturally speaking, we look to make it our home. The world around continues to make it their home. That's their pursuit. How do we live untethered from a world that isn't our home? This is a question that I want us to ask. Keeping our eyes fixed on the one that is our home. And as you're going to see in the weeks ahead, this is a, a primary focus throughout First Peter, um, where Peter prays that the church would, would understand the hope that they have, that they would understand and see what Christ suffered before, that they would recognize these realities that we're so prone to lose sight of. And my prayer is that as we traverse these waters, we would grow in a confidence that's rooted in Christ and motivated to faithfulness 
by the ongoing work of the Spirit of God in us. That's, that's my prayer for us as the church. It's my prayer for you as you're listening to this, that we would be a people who are untethered from the world in a way that we glorify the Lord in all that we do, that we have a confidence and a peace and a joy in the Lord in everything that we do. And I believe that when we do that, if we can get to that point, that's when we will have the most profound impact on the communities that the Lord has placed us in. That's when we will have the most lasting impact. But it starts with us answering the question, where do I find my confidence and who do I follow? Who do I follow? And, and we'll talk more about that as we step further into this text. Now, anytime we start into a book of scripture, there's several questions that we should ask and be very intentional about asking. One of the first questions we should be asking is, who wrote it? Who actually wrote this letter? <clears throat> In fact, I want you to say that wherever you're at right now. I'm going to count to three and I want you just to ask the question. Who wrote it? Hey, here we go. One, two, three. Good question. We're going to answer that. In fact, the very beginning of this book, it answers that question. In verse one, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, you may read that or you may be listening to that and go going. How am I supposed to expect to know who Peter is? And if we're not careful, it becomes one of those awkward situations where if you've spent time in Scripture, you may read that and think, oh, everyone knows who Peter is, and yet everyone might not know who Peter is. And now we've just put them in a situation where you go, oh, you know so-and-so. Like, you've met so-and-so. You know them. And that person is going, I really don't know them, but I'm going to pretend I do because I don't want this to be weird. But I I just want to give you a, a glimpse of who Peter is. Throughout all of scripture. And so you're going to see a a slide here that sums all of that up. And this is just a portion. There's more we could add to this as we think about Peter's life and who he is and how the Lord used him. But these here are some highlights of this that we can take note of. Uh, Simon was actually his name. And he's renamed by Jesus uh, in John chapter one. He's renamed Cephas or Peter. And so when you see, if you're reading through the New Testament and you see any of these three in reference to one of Jesus' disciples, he's not talking about three different guys. He's talking about Peter. Same guy. Same guy. Uh, Simon Peter in Luke chapter 5 is called by Jesus. And if you don't know that story, I'd encourage you to read it. Incredible, uh, incredible detail about how that all happened or Peter and his brothers, uh, they're out fishing and Jesus is out by the water and is teaching and he says to Peter and the guys in the boat with him, he says, cast your net on the other side of the boat and they've been out fishing all night. They, they haven't caught anything and yet they obey what Jesus tells them to do and when they do so, their net it becomes so full it fills their boat with fish. And it's right after this that Jesus turns and says, uh, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Follow me. And it says they left everything and followed Jesus. You stop and you consider that for a minute and think about <clears throat> what this says about who Peter is. And he uh, stopped and left everything about what he was used to in day to day life and chose to follow Jesus. 
And uh, ultimately, in the midst of our uh, talking about this, uh, maybe that's the portion of today where you need to sit most is learning from the example of Peter and answering the question, who do I follow? Who, who do I follow? And if you're not sure where you stand with Christ, if you, if you don't know where you're at with the Lord, then that's the primary question of today that you need to wrestle with before you wrestle with anything past that point is, <clears throat> is the Lord calling me, saying, follow me, follow my way of living? And if he is, who will you choose to follow? Who will you choose to follow? <clears throat> In Matthew 14, Simon Peter walked on water towards Jesus and subsequently sank when he took his eyes off of Jesus. In Matthew 16, you see Peter declare that Jesus indeed is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's been promised. In Luke chapter 22, you see Peter Deny Jesus three times, just as Jesus has predicted. And it's in these moments when we see aspects of Peter's life like this that we can resonate with Peter. Because how often is that our story, where we come out of the gate strong, I'm going to leave everything and follow you, Jesus. And then we encounter aspects of life that are fearful or challenging, and we doubt and we question whether this Jesus is who he said he was. And maybe even become prone to fear man to the point of denying that we follow Jesus at all. And yet, we see in John 21, a redemption of this, where Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And then gives him these three commands, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. <clears throat> this is Simon Peter who boldly preached at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where we see him shift from where he was before Jesus was crucified to this place of bold proclamation of what God in Christ had done <clears throat> and the need for people to repent and turn from their sins, be baptized and be saved. And you see the first breakout of a massive group of people coming to faith in the first century. Ultimately, in all of this, we see Peter was a fisherman. Uh, in Acts 4, he was recognized by religious leaders as a common man. There was nothing special about who Peter was, and yet that's God's M.O. He uses people who other people wouldn't think God would use, because then he gets the glory. A fallen man that God used to change the world. Another question that we would be wise to ask anytime we step into a book of scripture is, who is it written to? And so we're going to do the same thing. I'm going to have you ask that question. Who is it written to? I'll count to three. One, two, three. That's a great question. And it answers it in the next part of verse 1. <clears throat> to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, uh, when we look at this, there's a couple pieces here that we could break apart. And it become, it, it, if we're not careful, it becomes confusing for us to read this and go, I don't know any of these places. And then we just move on. And yet, there's great significance here. Well, for one, we see at the beginning of this, uh, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And there's a couple of questions we could ask there. <clears throat> one, what does it mean when it says elect exiles? Uh, what is the dispersion? Uh, and, and where are these places in accordance with geography and kind of what's going on in the world even today? 
Now, the, the first thing that I'll highlight here is when you look at the word dispersion, and this is what's happened, and it's wise to look at that to go, what is this and how does it relate to the group of people he's writing to? <clears throat> and if you, if you do a word study on this, you would come to two other places in scripture where this word dispersion is used. One is in John 7 verse 35, and the other is James 1 chapter, James chapter 1 verse 1. So that easily, if we're not careful, uh, can, we can become prone to look at those where it references Jewish Christians who were dispersed amongst Gentiles. And so that's one train of thought into who Peter's writing to. But there are <clears throat> several verses throughout the rest of First Peter that convince me uh, to take the approach that Peter's writing broadly to all these believers who are spread out across these regions, not just the Jewish believers. And the first one of those places is in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, you could make the case that the Jewish people were ignorant in as to the, the ways of God, but not in the same way that even the Gentiles were, uh, of their uh, unawareness of what God asked of people and what he required of them. There, there was an ignorance there. And there's a call in this that if you're going to be obedient children, that would be children of God, that you uh, don't conform to those old ways of living. Uh, but the second passage in First Peter that points back to this maybe is more uh, evidential of This being written to the broad scope of believers, not just Jewish people. It says in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The part of this passage that sticks out drastically is once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now, you could make the argument that the Jewish people were indeed called the people of God, that they were God's chosen people. And this points to a people who were not a people, but now have been made a people, receiving the mercy of God at once they had not received. And the the third passage here is in chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, where it says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, there's a there's an emphasis here that the Gentiles live a certain way and these Gentiles in the regions where these believers are at uh, are surprised that these individuals are not participating in the same activities they're participating in. Now, again, it could just be general people who go, well, why don't you do the things that we're doing? But it would be even more uh more emphatic for those people to be surprised that they weren't doing those things if that was the past way they lived. If, if, if these individuals lived this way in the past, 
and then came to a point of realizing uh, that that's not the way. That's not the way they're going to live. And uh, ultimately ending up at this place of I'm choosing to follow after Jesus. I'm choosing to follow Christ in these things. So in the midst of this, uh, at, at the end of all of this, uh, where it says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, the most important piece we need to take away is that this is written to believers. It's written to believers. And these regions are all through northern Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Now, to give you a picture of this, modern, <clears throat> modern day Turkey is not just like a small region. This isn't like Peter writing to uh, the churches in Fulton County. Uh, we're talking about a huge country. A huge country. If you were to put the country of Turkey over top the United States of America, you would see it span from Chicago, really into Indiana, all the way over to Denver. I, I mean, this is a big, big section. And he's writing to churches. If you pull up a map and you could do that, uh, just Google the names of these churches and put map. Uh, uh, and, and you'll see a picture of it pulled up that they're spread out. So this letter is written to a whole grouping, a whole country of believers who are scattered across. They weren't all in one place. And yet the message that's being communicated is the same, which should increase its significance as we think about. This is not just in one local small town community, but was written to a country of believers who needed to be reminded that this place is not their home. And if this place is not their home, then it changes the very fabric of how they live and what their priorities are and even how to endure suffering that they are going to face because they've chosen to follow Jesus. Now, another question that uh, we should ask in this is what is the purpose of Peter writing this letter? And I'm not going to have you repeat that one, but uh, it's a question we should ask. And what you're going to see as we navigate through this is uh, he's written this letter to encourage the church to fix their eyes on a lasting hope. Uh, He says uh, later on in uh, chapter one, we're going to see this next week. They, they, They reminds them of the living hope they've been born into. It reminds them to remember what Christ suffered beforehand. It reminds them to honor the Lord in all of the places that he's put them. Whether that be in their work, in their home, in their community. To honor the Lord. And brings a focus back to what God in Christ has already done. That that would become the confidence and the motivation for who they are becoming day after day after day. Uh, Now, a question we may ask as we look at this and going, okay, if I understand even that this place is not my home, as we read in Philippians, and even if I understand that these people are spread all over, and if I've read the whole of 1 Peter, which I challenge you and encourage you to do, you see him encouraging and reminding them, don't put your hope in these things. Don't find your passions in the things of this world. If, If that's where I'm at, then how do I... Start in reminding people that this is not their home. How does one go about doing that? And we see an example of Peter doing just that in these first couple of verses. Where he returns to a place of reminding them what the foundation is that everything else is built on. Look at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 
and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You start with their eviction notice, the day of their rebirth and adoption as sons and daughters. That's where you start. And there's four specific truths that I want us to grab hold of just in this verse, in verse 2, just in this section. Uh, The first truth in that is that uh, this is a work that is done by God. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, it's answering the question, how did these individuals become elect exiles, strangers in a place like this that's not their home? And it was according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It was God who did the work. And this is reaffirmed when we think about other places in Scripture, like Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, you're saved by grace through faith, and this is not of works, so that no one can boast. It's a gift of God through Christ Jesus. Everyone say it's a gift. It's a gift. And that's significantly different than saying, this is something I have to earn, I have to do. Uh, This is a work that's done by God. But it doesn't stop there. It's a work that's spurred on by the Holy Spirit. We see this in the sanctification of the Spirit. Um, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, it's spurred on by the Holy Spirit. We see evidence of this in Galatians 5. Really practical example. Walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are opposed to the things of the spirit and vice versa. There is there's no synonymous relationship between what our flesh desires and what the spirit of God leads us to. It's the reason we have to be reborn, because the desires of my flesh are opposed to the things that God would desire for us. So we stop when we think about that. This work is done by God and is continued and spurred on by the Holy Spirit. And we call that process sanctification. A process by which we become more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. Now, one might ask, well, what's the reason for this work that God has done and continues to do through His Spirit? Well, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. For obedience to Christ, a work motivating obedience to Christ. This is what the Spirit motivates the believer towards. If you ever have any question about what what is being prompted in my life, is this a thing of God or is this a thing of me? Um, You can answer one simple question. Does this further my agenda or does this motivate me to obey Christ's agenda and what he has called me to? It's a really simple way to discern whether it's the spirit of God you're listening to or the spirit of self. Romans 1 emphasizes this where um, Paul opens up his letter to the church in Rome and says, A servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son who descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 
The work that the work that God has done and is doing in his church is to motivate us in obedience to Christ. Lastly, it's a work that's dependent on the work of Christ for sprinkling with his blood. Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 in 1 Peter, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You and I are helpless apart from the work of Christ. We cannot come to God on our own because of the sinfulness of our flesh. We owe a debt that we cannot repay. And yet in Christ, that debt was paid and satisfied. And that is exactly why Jesus said in John 14, 6, that no one can come to the Father except through Him. He's the only way. Why is He the only way? Why, in the midst of all these other beliefs and fabrics of thought, is Jesus the only way? Because Jesus is the only one who gave His life to pay the price that you and I owe. There is no other name on, under heaven by which we, must, we can be saved. It's, it's dependent on the work of Christ. If you and I try to get to the Lord in any other way, we will fail. And this comes back to the, the place of asking, who will I follow? Am I going to try to do this my way? Am I going to try to achieve eternal satisfaction my way? Or am I going to take the way of the one who literally came down from eternity so that we could be with God forever. If we look at even the emphasis of sprinkling of blood throughout the Bible, we see the most examples of this in the Old Testament. The cleansing of the temple, <clears throat> the inauguration of the law in Exodus 24, the ordination of Aaron and his sons as priests in Leviticus 8, the cleansing of the lepers in Leviticus 14, and on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And the purpose of these cleanings, these cleansings, was not justification. Because they were justified by their faith in God. <clears throat> but it was sanctification. Restoring fellowship that had been broken by sin. This is the very reminder even <clears throat> that in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 24... It reminds says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Um, there's, there is this assurance in verse 19 that since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Um, that's the exhortation for us to draw near, for us to hold fast, for us to stir up one another to these things. It's rooted in what has been made possible through the blood of Christ. So over and over again. We need to be reminded of uh, this is a work done by God. It's spurred on by the Holy Spirit in our lives day after day. Uh, it, it's motivating us towards obedience in Christ. And, and ultimately, it's dependent on the work of Christ for that to even take place. Now, when we stop and we consider these tr 
truths and we consider the full scope by which even the introduction to this letter is being had. It brings us to this place of a question. If this work has been accomplished and this place is not my home, what changes? If salvation has been accomplished and this place is not my home, what changes? And as we think about that question, I want to give us three biblical realities that change when we realize salvation is in Christ alone. I, didn't, I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. And when I realize that this is not eternity, my life here is not eternal. And I will not, no matter how hard I try, be able to establish an eternal life here that comes even close to comparing with eternity with God the Father. But what has to change? What changes when that's a reality in my life? <clears throat> the first thing is my king. A, citizen, a different citizenship means a different ruler. Who is the king of my heart, really? Now, it's always intriguing to me and kind of comical to me that any time I bring this up in conversation or talking about this theologically with people, and I say, well, what has to be different is you have to serve a different king. And notoriously, there will be at least one person who goes, yeah, you know, the government is so corrupt. And I just shake my head. Because the reality is, if we're really honest, if we really take a look and say, who is the king of my life? The number one truthful answer is that it becomes ourselves. That I am the king of my life and I'm going to do what I want to do and I'm going to make the rules I want to make. And if it doesn't make me happy, then nobody's going to be happy until I'm happy. And so even the emphasis that my king changes when I realize these truths and recognize these things should be a recognition that I need to humble myself and submit myself under the authority of another. Under the authority of God himself. And if I haven't done that, if I haven't brought myself to this place of realizing that I serve another and it is not me then I really have yet to shift away from a mindset that says, well, this is my home and I am my ruler. I'm stuck in that if I'm the one I serve. Uh, this is part of why Jesus calls us to such a radical way of living throughout the New Testament. Why he emphasizes to his disciples, Peter being one of these disciples who witnessed these very things. The reality is the problem becomes that you and I become so focused on establishing a kingdom here <clears throat> that we lose sight of what God has called us to for eternity. It's the same problem the disciples had. These guys had the same struggle where they were convinced Jesus was going to take over. He was going to overthrow the rulers and establish the kingdom that God had promised since David. This was it. He's the Messiah. He's the one. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. And we're going to be at his right hand. We're, we're going to be really important guys. And they were fighting the wrong battle. They didn't realize that until after the fact. And then we see them take the mission and go and do and be exactly who God calls them to be. Secondly, not just my king changes, but my constitution changes. 
My constitution changes. A different citizenship means a different set of rules. Who do I really follow? Who or what do I really follow? Now, you may not think that you have some out there rules. You may not think that there's some things that need to shift as far as the rules that you follow. But I'm going to tell you, uh, Fulton County, Illinois, has their own set of rules. And I know because I'm from here. But here's the interesting thing. I didn't really know about the set of rules that existed within our own subculture of people until I left for five years. And I stepped into a different subculture of people who have their own set of rules. And I didn't know what those set of rules were. And then it caused me to ask the question, well, wait a minute. Okay, if if I see this in this subculture, what unspoken rules existed in the culture I grew up in that I didn't even realize because it just was part of life? And when I came back, I started seeing some of those. And I'm going to tell you, uh, some of those things aren't bad, but there's some of them that really get in the way of us being faithful to what God has called us to. Of really being faithful to what is true. And nowhere in here does this say that a change in my the rules I follow is going to be easy. And Jesus spoke out against this consistently. We see pervasively in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and his emphasis, even on, you've heard that it was said this way, but I'm going to tell you a different way. <clears throat> you've heard that it was said, hate your enemies. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. <sighs> That's hard. Everyone say, That's hard. These aren't simple things for us to follow after. And yet, if I recognize that God has accomplished this work that I cannot do, and this place is not my home, if I recognize those things, then the set of rules I follow should become different. Should become different. Lastly, if my king is different, my constitution is different, My confidence should be different. A different king and constitution means a different definition of success. How do I define success? What does it look like? What does it look like in the midst of a changing culture? What does it look like in the midst of hardship and suffering and pain and grief? Is my confidence in something that's of this world that I've used to make it feel like home? Uh, Some of you have experienced the intense taking away of those things. And it's caused a greater burden and maybe even a doubt of your faith. And there's a part of that that's rooted because when we put our faith in something of this world and it's taken away, it shatters the foundation that we've built everything else on. When the foundation is shattered, everything else collapses underneath of it. And we have to ask ourselves, what is my confidence in? Where do I find my hope? Where do I fix my eyes? And you want to do an evaluation and know where your confidence lies. Look at where you prioritize your time, your money, uh, your family, your resources. Where is all of the energy and focus that you have left go to? What do we give the leftovers? If our hope is different than the world then our confidence should be different than the world. And I'm going to tell you, family, there is no other lasting confidence or hope that you will find 
You may find temporary relief in a focus on something that gives you passion and desire and yearning, but there will come a day when that fades away and you're going to search for something else. There will come a day when you are yearning for peace of mind and confidence that you have not and cannot find in yourself. And you're going to grapple for anything that feels like a semblance of something that is firm and lasts. And yet, there's one place we can have confidence for eternity. It's in the work that God has done in Christ. And the work He continues to do in us through His Spirit that lives in us. And it's in this motivation where Peter's desire at the very end of these first two verses that grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's where it's found. And as we, un- as we uncover the rest of this uh, letter, uh, the, the five chapters that follow this, uh, my prayer is that your confidence would grow, that your hope would be established, that you would be rooted in a way that does not fade, it does not change, it doesn't go away, because you are rooted into Christ. You're rooted into what He's done. And where you can confidently assert that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So that's where we're going to fix our eyes. That's how we're going to begin this journey through First Peter. I look forward to continuing to walk through this in a way that the church is built up in the way God's intended it to. And most of all, that He's glorified above anything else. Father, as we consider these truths, may we be a people who are becoming who you would have us be. Help us to fix our eyes on Christ. Remind us of the hope you've given us through the work that is finished in Christ. Lord, help us to see and and even pray as the psalmist prays. Lord, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Father, that you would be glorified in Jesus' name.